Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, I'm Mayhem. Hello, I'm Chaos. And our happiness is egg-shaped. Happiness is egg-shaped and love's a circle with no end. Happiness is egg shaped and love's a circle with no end. Hello and welcome to the Happiness Is podcast with me, your host Bruce Aitchison from Happiness Is Egg Shaped. And today we have another author. We've had a few, um, most of them probably more well known for other things. But I picked up this book. I have a lot of rugby books. I picked up this book, didn't know this guy at all and absolutely loved the book. Learned a lot about him. Um, been on his very cool website. I think the future is very, very bright. I'm interested to see what happens. Uh, ridiculously handsome, uh, far too good looking, sporty, intelligent, a scholar, all of those things just to make me look and feel even worse about myself. But I'm hoping that over the course of this hour, it's going to be good chat and I'm going to feel a lot better. The man that is going to join us today is Ben Mercer, who wrote this brilliant book called Fringes. We're going to find out a little bit about this, a little bit about him, and a lot about the future. So without any further ado, please welcome the one and the only Mr. Ben Mercer. Hello, sir. Hi, how you doing? Yeah, I'm very well, thank you. Thank you for joining us. I'm delighted to see you. Where are you just now and what are you up to? Uh, I'm I'm just near Bath and yeah, I, I've had a very good week actually. So last week I kind of confirmed the third book project that I'm going to be working on. So I'm really excited about that. Nice. And is it around sport? Because your first two have been sport. Yeah, yeah. It's another, it's a collaboration with another athlete. So um, I'm, I don't know how comfortable he is to be sharing it yet. So I won't tell you who it is, but he's a GB track athlete. And it's going to be a kind of handbook around uh, mental health around his kind of the things he's learned across the course of his career and journey and 
then how other people might be able to kind of learn from those experiences and uh, yeah, and apply them themselves. Nice, I like it. I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to reading the second book that I've only just realised you've got out because I love the first one. Now, you mentioned about not really wanting to be a journalist um, and you didn't really have an idea of what this book was going to be. Would you call it a passion project? Uh, yeah, it was It was so many things rolled up into one. I mean, when I was growing up, my two things were books and sports, really. So it worked quite nicely because as anyone who plays sport knows that like, you spend a lot of time sat on buses. So it's a great way of, um, you know, once the once the chat's calmed down a little bit, you can whip your book out and while the, while the hour's away. Uh, but yeah, I, I stopped playing rugby and I started dabbling in a bit of writing. I did a short, uh, short fiction writing course. There's a, I recommend it to anyone who's interested in, in you know, exploring their writing because it's free. It's, uh, it's, it's with the Open University and it's anonymous. So you can kind of, you can dip into it. And the more feedback you give other people on the course, the more you get back on your own writing. So it's a really kind of consequence, pressure-free way of like seeing if you like it, basically. Um, I'm not sure I'd say it's pressure free if you're receiving feedback. Yeah, but it's because it's anonymous, it feels very detached, you know, that it's not embarrassing in a way that you don't have to sort of stand up and read it out. It just gets sent, you know, sent to other people. So I, I felt like it was a really kind of safe way of dipping my toes into it. One of the um, things I find when I'm speaking to people on these things that there's no way you could have planned where life has gone. You, you might have had an idea. I mean, you, you obviously wanted to be a professional rugby player. That was the, the burning desire quite early on. Did you ever think, what will I do next? Yeah, that's the big question, I think, with a lot of athletes. You, and it's scary. I think, you know, like you, you're playing and it's great, but you, you obviously have this you know, ticking clock and it is scary. And my thing was I never really had another thing that I knew I wanted to do. So... I had this, once I stopped, I had a year where I tried loads of different things. And, you know, I was in, I was fortunate to be in a position where I didn't have people kind of depending on me. And I, I had that time and space to do that, but it didn't make it a lot easier because <laughs> you know, the, the world's got so many possibilities in it. And so it, if you're not finding anything that's really grabbing you and in a way it's sort of silly to expect that maybe from work because sports obviously been such a big passion for, for most athletes that, you know, to find something else as sort of engrossing is maybe is maybe unrealistic, but it's quite disheartening if you're trying things and nothing's kind of doing it for you, then you, you it's easy to get frustrated. And athletes also are sort of feedback machines. Like everything you do is you get feedback. I could throw you the ball and you'd be like, you know, I'm, people who know me, I might throw it to you very badly. And, <laughs> <laughs> and you'd be like, come on, mate, that was terrible. And I'd know immediately that, I need to do that better. Whereas the world doesn't give you like fast feedback. The world moves in a kind of at a slower pace, I suppose. So for athletes, I think who are people who want to get on and they want to, you know, get to the next level or they want to improve, you know, and they want to know, and it's actually quite difficult because the world doesn't do that for you. So it's a sort of big adjustment in so many ways. But your your mindset there, I think, has come screaming out. The world is full. There's so many possibilities. There will be a lot of athletes who have the complete flip of that, that I've, I've got nothing. What on earth can I do? So being able to try lots of things is is obviously your mindset to what can I do next? 
Yeah, I think that was my mindset. But equally, I, I understand it. <laughs> when you think like maybe there's nothing out there for me, it's the same feeling. It's like, well, you know, maybe I'm just gonna have to take something on the chin here. And it's it's a it's a sort of constant wrestle. And you and you realize that everybody has this as well. I mean, like I, there's a one guy we did a talk with. And he was saying he'd changed career a few times. Yeah, he'd been a teacher, he'd been a lawyer, he was a business consultant. And he said, it annoys me that sports people talk about retiring. And he was like, you know, everyone says that an athlete retires from football, rugby, whatever it is. And he was like, I didn't retire from being a teacher. (laughs) (laughs) Hang my, you know, I don't know, my whiteboard pens up. Yeah, not not his chalk. I I love this. On your website, you said, being a recently retired athlete meant that I was allegedly soft skill rich, but I was experienced poor. Now, that's the the classic knockback, isn't it? Uh, You know, you've not got enough experience. But those soft skills are the things that now people are realizing rugby's not just run fast, lift heavy, kick it far. It's the relationships you build, communication, receiving feedback, giving feedback, constant striving for improvement. But how do you help someone package that up into this is who I am and this is what I can do next? I think it's it's partly on the athlete to maybe develop something. And, you know, in a way, even though I said the world moves quite slowly, it's like there's there's certain things where the sort of actual skills that might be involved in a job. You know, there's so many digital skills you can get paid to do, um, you know, paid to use. If you've got a certain thing, and whether that's writing or whether that's like, you know, using social media platforms in a kind of professional way, or, you know, there's there's certain things that people will pay you for. So it's kind of on you to show that you've maybe got an actual applicable skill in the workplace. And I think those other things, you know, I, I used to think as an athlete that, those soft skills when people talked about them, I used to think they were a load of bollocks. Like, you know, like not not that I didn't think that they existed and that we had them, but that, you know, surely no one would need to kind of that this wouldn't be unusual. And and actually in, you know, my brief experiences of the workplace and speaking to friends and other people out there, you know, when they talk about their sort of company review or things that happen like that, you just think, oh my God, like that does sound terrible. <laughs> <laughs> that does sound terrible. And I, I always thought the kind of athlete to sort of teamwork consultant was a bit spurious. But actually, I just don't think it is. I think I think it's really quite, you know, people clearly need to hear it. There, there are so many, and you see it a lot on social media, this athlete now helping this company mm. or, is set, or is giving talks. And it does feel like there's a bit of saturation, but there, it can't be. There's obviously a need for it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and that's how I kind of felt about it before. But then I think that these things, they they are actually valuable. And I think with rugby in particular, uh, like, you know, a team sport, a sport where there's a lot of you, you're very interdependent, um, you know, and obviously it's got its kind of cultural heritage of being like, you know, a lot of, lot of fun, basically. I think quite often you are like a good character in a group you are someone who is a great team person and someone who who genuinely wants everyone else to do well as well who you know it's <laughs> not just out for themselves but you're somebody who 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 wants to kind of help everyone else around you kind of do better so i think that's a, like a nice thing about the sport and the other thing is just 
the actual network you have. You know, like everybody is sort of, you know, one, not this Kevin Bacon, six degrees of separation. <laughs> it might be two, you know, like there's actually, you'll know more people than you, than you realize. We, we did that on a rugby bus once. I was sitting at the front uh, being a coach and speaking to some of the committee men and we, we were talking about how you were five handshakes away from the president of America. And I, <laughs> and I was saying, I reckon you're only three away from any all black because it, it's such a small village of a of a world that rugby you said that either, uh, i'm just quoting your uh, website back to you again what rugby <laughs> did do for me to a far greater extent than i ever thought was give me friends on every continent the friendships and memories that it's given me are nothing short of spectacular again tr- there's a lot about kids getting involved in the game now it's dangerous there's head knocks i mean it is a bloody stupid game but you try people that are falling out the other end of it, like us. We try and sort of promote those aspects, but it's quite a hard sell because it's not an instant. It's something that's a, quite literally a slow burner. Um, but the experiences you have and the people you meet are priceless, aren't they? They really are. And I think the other thing is you don't have to be a professional athlete and play the most dangerous version of the game. Um, to get those benefits, you know, me, me and my me and my oldest friends, uh, we're, we're still friends from when we were seven years old, and we grew up playing rugby together, and we played for the school, you know, we played for our school team, and you know, that's not that, that was fine, that was a good level of rugby, I suppose, but it's not it, <laughs> you're a long way off being a professional, and we got to go on tour, we we spent all this time, and and actually they, they were fantastic memories, and we don't talk about them often, but. They do every now and again come up or they're part of our shared history. And um, yeah, there's, there's there's absolutely no reason to kind of assume that you need to do this really dangerous version. I think you, you can, those benefits can accrue to you just by playing, you know, your school game, your local club game. That, that, that's just what the game's like. Uh, were you a social animal? Was that something you loved? Yeah, I, I'm... Yeah, I'm, I'm a little bit of both. Like, I love my own time. I like to read. And actually, I've really, I've learned to love to write as well. I really like that process, being on my own and kind of wrestling with it. But I, I thrive in company. Yeah, I love, I love the team kind of environment. I love the social. I, you know, I'd be very, um, you know, Wednesday night, you know. <laughs> I, I'd be very happy to, uh, to get down the pub and even have one, you know, even have one or two and just kind of, sit there and take the load off a little bit. And I actually found as well, sometimes if you're not, if you're not like all on it all the time, you know, if you, if you just want to have a couple of beers, it might actually spur you on the next day. So you're like, Oh, I was in the pub, you know, I was kind of in the pub last night. I had two beers, you know, I better put a good shift today. It might actually, you know, those, those kind of benefits that they're, they're unquantifiable, obviously. That, that weird rugby psychology. Yeah. 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 Definitely. <laughs> And you headed north for for uni, and you played at Bladen, great club, uh, full of amazing people, and there's so much rugby around that area, and so many rivalries. How how did that go down? Were were you confident that you could stroll in there and and just be Ben, or did you have to sit in the corner quietly until it was your time? Um, I, I had no idea until I went up to university, yeah, in Newcastle that. I had no idea about how kind of thriving that club rugby scene was, to be honest. And um, 
And I got there, and then in the second year of my degree, the Falcons were like, oh, you need to go on loan. So Tyndale felt a bit like far away, and it, then it was Bladen and Darlington, and Bladen was the closest. And to be honest, I didn't really want to play in the first year. I was like, oh, do I really have to have to do that? And I went down, and I did actually quite enjoy enjoy it, but I didn't play that much. It was actually my last year. I was like, right, no, I'm going to kind of commit to this properly, and I turned up for preseason. I did everything, and. I loved, I loved it. I thought they were great. They were so friendly. Um, you know, when I turned out, they were like, <laughs> you're obviously a sort of private, privately educated Southerner and everyone's kind of this, um, you know, there's different guys there, but they're largely like guys from the North who worked there. And our captain was a policeman and, you know, he looked like a policeman as well. Dave Guthrie, who's a bit of a legend. And he, he used to kind of, what, he missed one game because he had obviously all police were on duty for like the Tyne Weir derby. And you, you're thinking like, yeah, I wouldn't want to, you know, come across him. <laughs> like if I was misbehaving, I wouldn't want him to call on me kind of thing. But they were great. And I remember we like ended up fitting in really well. And there was me and my housemate who were both from university ended up kind of playing the team a lot. And it was funny because one of the guys came up to us like after a couple of months and he was like, this used to be a proper like northern working man's rugby club. And he was like, and now there's people like you here. <laughs> And like, you know, he said it with a big grin on his face. And we were just like, and don't you just love it? And we were like, hmm. <laughs> they were so, they were so great. And, yeah, we used to um, go out with them on Saturdays after the games. And no students go out on the weekends, like in Newcastle. It's like proper kind of locals night. But we got to kind of get to know the city a bit better like that because with, sometimes if you're studying somewhere, you're sort of a bit separate, aren't you, from the people who actually live there? Whereas this was, it was a really nice way of getting to know kind of proper people from Newcastle. Did you realise that at the time or is that just on reflection? A bit of both. I think like at the time, you know, it was just fun. You're thinking, yeah, why wouldn't I, you know, get to know you guys a bit better? And, and actually, you know, still in touch with a couple of them a little bit now and... Uh, yeah, a couple of them have read the book and stuff like that. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> you know, it's, it's good. It was all good fun. I bet, you, I bet you copped absolute pelters. I bet somebody walked into the changing room and went, have you read this? <laughs> <laughs> it's cool. Um, I love it when people send me pictures when they when it's like they see it out in the wild, you know, when they see someone else reading it. And there's, there's someone someone's on the common in London like last last summer. And there's this, there's some like old dude with his shirt off, like big gut, and he's sort of slumped against something. He's like, it's quite a distinctive cover, obviously, and he's just sat there reading it. And I was like, yes, <laughs> I love getting a picture like that. It's brilliant. I, I find that with the the podcast, it's a funny because I do this, and then it it goes out, it goes out there, and mm. I I I thought it was only my mum that listened to it, and it's been funny. Some of the I've bumped into people, and I've uh, you know, people have told my mum that they've listened to it, and it, it's it's quite a nice thing. Have you have you you've done readings and things like that and talks on it? What sort of feedback have you had that's made you think, right? This is definitely for me. Um, I mean, just the the kind of initial feedback, I suppose. Like, it was terrifying putting it out, and I I, I was fish with it I, I sat on it for a couple of months you know tinkering with it and you know making incredibly like minor changes and um it was that was the last bit where i was like oh, i'm a bit worried about this what if everyone thinks either if it's if it's ignored if it's ignored it wouldn't be too bad because you'd be like 
well, I don't have a big profile and whatever. But if it was, if, if everyone's like, this is shite, then <laughs> <laughs> you just be <laughs> kind of mortifying. But I'd actually, um, I'd given it to a couple of people before and, you know, that didn't know, like a couple of people didn't know me. And one was my oldest friend. We, we met up for a coffee and he, he read the first draft and he was like, I think this is like really good. And I was like, oh, thank God. And, I, and he was like, I don't know what I'd say to you if I thought it was bad, because obviously I put all this effort into it. And he was like, I, I might just lie. And I was like, well, I was like well, how do I know you're not lying now, pal? Like, you know, what's that about? But um, yeah, the, the kind of initial reviews were like really complimentary and, um, and, the, and the reviews that were less than complimentary were largely about uh, like the sort of like proofreading and stuff, which is something I've been able to address subsequently. But, the uh yeah yeah the um the, just the reception and people sending me messages it was really lovely like and you know people like yourself getting in touch and people saying oh yeah a lot. or even like you know someone who had their own kind of fringe rugby experience yeah like i spent two years in like leon playing for you know some like local team and just the stories you get sent are fantastic so anything like that is is like one of the kind of benefits of the book that I you know, wasn't expecting to happen, but have actually been some of the best. You've named a lot of people in the book. How, how have they received it? Well, luckily, a lot of the French lads don't speak English that well, so um, they definitely can't read it. <laughs> but um, yeah, everyone's been really good about it, actually. And my, my teammates were like, um, they were almost like, I wish you'd like, said a few more things and I was like well the thing is lads is people find some of these stories unbelievable yeah so you know some of the other stories might render us all unemployable so <laughs> <laughs> like, don't want to burn all, all our bridges yeah, yeah. Um, who, yeah. Who, who gave you a hard time for not being mentioned in it oh it's funny so uh the bean my my flatmate Luke Cousins who was he's a big kind of reference point in the book and he was really pissed off because at one point I was said that his like conditioning was terrible. And he was like, when I saw him, he was like, "Oh, you had that, you know? How could you say that?" And like, he was annoyed. But obviously, I pumped his tires a bit with his kicking and stuff. So, you know, it wasn't all bad. <laughs> it's it's really cool that that you've told that story because there are so many. Um, I'm sitting in an office just now that David Cherry, who has now played for Scotland, won the Calcutta Cup at Twickenham, although it was in front of no one. <laughs> Dave, Dave went to France um, because he was still trying to become that professional rugby player. He was at London Scottish, took a punt and went to lower leagues in France. And then a chance, an opportunity came. Was that the dream or were you just doing what was in front of you? Was it that if this happens, there will be, I mean, you talk about going to that team in France and then hopefully getting a, a gig further up and then you spend four years there, you know, trying to make something and, and live in part of a, a more collective dream, I suppose. Did you surrender yourself to that? Yeah, I did. I think um, when I initially took the deal, yeah, and I was still kind of hoping to get up to, yeah, maybe Pro D Deux and then, you know, see see what happens. And Pro D Deux is a very good league. It's like, you know, there's some international players in Pro D Deux and it's, and it's a big league. It's 16 teams, so it's pretty brutal. There's a lot of rugby and, yeah, uh, it's, that, that would be a pretty good division to get to anyway. But 
yeah, I, I was still kind of hoping to be on an upward trajectory, I suppose. And because that was what Richard Hill, who was the coach, that was sort of his plan as well. And that's what he said to us when we when we moved over there, when he told me you know, there was sort of five English guys. There was two of us who'd come from the championship and myself and Joe Elliott. But he was saying, oh, you know, have a year there, then we'll get down to the south somewhere and, you know, like a better team. And I think he realised that he wouldn't have the autonomy uh, that he had at Rouen, like elsewhere. And actually, it was really nice, like living there. It was very, and I think later on, I did become, I was ambitious, like in terms of the group. But for myself, I didn't really explore any other opportunities. So I think I was just quite content, like for the sort of, particularly in like maybe the third season, it looked like we were moving forward. I just thought, well, I know if I go to another French team, it's going to be kind of a bit of a wrestle. The coaches, you hear the odd horror story about like, you know, I signed for them and the coach was a maniac. And <laughs> so I was like, well, at least this maniac, I, uh, I know. <laughs> but um, yeah, there's, there's one point in particular. So I think it was the second season I was there and I got an offer. Well, I had an approach from a pro team. And I told them about, um, I had a minor kind of knee ligament injury at the time, like a little six-weeker, basically. But the, the way, they, they always get people on, they're called medical joker contracts. So when, when they have an injury, they, they're actually allowed to get dispensation to go out and sign someone like at whatever time of the year. And um, yeah, and I, I'd said, well, look, unfortunately, I'm not available to play for the next, you know, five weeks or whatever it was. And they were like, oh, thanks for being honest. And I was thinking, have I been too honest? <laughs> should, I, should I have just said, mm, yeah. And then like in the first training session, gone, oh, my knee doesn't feel great. <laughs> but yeah, that's just not who I am. But I think the, the, every kind of athlete has these sliding doors moments as well a little bit. And, you know, everyone experiences loads of them. If I'd played a bit better in that trial or, you know, I, if I'd said hello to that bloke, you know, <laughs> there's a lot of different, there's a lot of different things. But that, that was maybe the only time I had a kind of concrete, uh, concrete sort of approach from a better team in France. And there was one other incident where I'd been away. We'd had like a, a week off maybe. And I'd been in Germany and I, kept, I got the train back to Paris and two of the lads were in Paris meeting an agent and he he was keen to meet me as well. So we met this agent and it was bizarre because it was so loose. The bloke was just, and I don't know what I was expecting, but you know, when you meet agents in the UK, so when I met them before, they're quite often like wearing a suit and they're like, you know, quite official. And this guy was just sort of in his, in his sweater and we were in a bar in Paris and Six Nations was on. So we just had a massive drinking session. <laughs> just like, what is going on? <laughs> but yeah, it was fun. So. And agents, you're, you're obviously a smart cookie um, and there's a lot of agents around and they, there are some who, you know, have a bit of a reputation, but they're they're selling something, aren't they? They're selling opportunity, I suppose. And there's a lot of people who are desperate to grasp that. Do you get asked by younger players of people approached you to say, "What should I do? Can I do it on my own? How, how does it work? How do I make contacts?" I don't um, no, I don't have like young players reach out particularly. Uh, the I, it's difficult because people feel quite strongly about them. I, when I've spoken to like journalists in particular, they they seem to really dislike agents. But from my perspective on the player's side, it's like the agents looking out for like the well-being of their player. And, and maybe they don't, maybe, you know, maybe there are some who have a kind of huge stable of players and they're all just a sort of commodity to them. But 
I don't think there are that many people who are genuinely representing the well-being and interest of the players. So at least the agent, because they have an aligned interest, like are kind of looking out for these guys. And some of the deals that people accept, you know, I, I met someone relatively recently who's, you know, pretty experienced player. He's probably like, he's probably late 20s, like maybe he might be 30. And he'd been, he'd been at a premiership club last season and they paid him 400 pounds a month and you're like well you know these people these contracts are so some of them are so bad so at least someone is you know out there and you know maybe his should have done a better job but (laughs) but at least someone's out there looking out for the kind of interest of the players and and you know there are people that i know who have ended up in sort of sticky situations with their club and their agent at least is sort of fighting their corner. It must be quite intimidating for a lot of players because they're taking on a corporation really, aren't they? Yeah, exactly. And you, you, you can suddenly feel very small. Um, but yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. There's something that's just happened where the, the clubs are trying to not pay the agents. Um, they're, they're, they're saying the players have to pay them directly. And it's like, right, well, I can understand that because the the agent sort of represents the player, but then that's only going to, you know, like with the salary cap, there's loads of implications. And then it means if you're going to sign, if you want to sign, I don't know, Bowden Barrett, Bowden Barrett's not going to do away with an agent. He's not going to negotiate his own contract. You know, you're going to have to deal with an agent. So it means if you want to sign Bowden Barrett, he then costs another 10% against the salary cap and, you know, all the rest of it. So there's all these knock-on effects. It's all quite complicated. Um, and it's complicated. Yeah. For, it's difficult for for guys like me, who really is just a, a supporter, somebody mm. who, who loves rugby. And there's lots of people who will, you know, sit and chew the fat over a beer in a club rooms about, oh, this guy signed for this. And really, we don't know the story. When you're in somewhere like France, I mean, your, your book, in some ways, um reinforce some of the stereotypes about crazy French owners and how emotional it can be, a decision's made and all of a sudden the player's gone. That that must bring some anxiety. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's an insecure line of work, you know, and, and particularly at the lower level where a lot of, you know, most of our squad in France, they're on like year-to-year contracts. So that's very common in the championship for sure. Uh, the premiership, there's quite a lot of people who, you know, they're on a one-year deal and you know, you're only one injury away from not having any work and, and no prospects of getting any either. You know, like people don't want to sign a bloke who's going to be sat there injured for six months. So people might leave you on the shelf and sort of say, come back to us when you're, you know, up and running. And it's, it's incredibly, it's incredibly um, stressful, or it can be anyway. Uh, you have to kind of put that aside. I mean, someone going back to the sort of soft skill point, I did a talk uh, for university and someone said afterwards what related this whole kind of the whole journey as it were which is what they wanted they were like oh you seem quite a resilient person i was like well i never really thought about myself like that but actually i don't think i'm unusual in terms of you know all these guys in rugby you have to be quite resilient because yeah you're, you're kind of taking those risks and it's year to year and you probably develop a level of sort of risk tolerance that maybe other people don't have you know like it is risky and you took a chance and you went off to Australia and, you know, it's not an uncommon thing for people to do, especially if you can pack your rugby boots to go somewhere like Sydney or go to New Zealand. Mm. What was that experience like? 
it was just really fun. I mean, I thought I was going to go for three months and play a bit of rugby. And I'd actually, like, right before I left, I had a, you know, it was a bit of a sliding doors moment, but I'd had the premiership uh, head coach speak to me. And I was like, oh, like, you know, if only you sort of met you six months before. But he's like, yeah, go over there, play a couple of months, you know, get some rugby and, you know, we'll see what we can do about next year sort of thing. I thought, great. I went over there and I got kind of bunged in a lower grade. And then it was fun, but I was like, no one's going to be too impressed by, <laughs> by it. And then that guy lost his job. And I was like, yeah, oh, well, like, you know, and I was having loads of fun there. Um, I, I had a part-time job at school coaching in the afternoon. I qualified as a barista. So I was managing a cafe in the mornings and they, they'd feed me a massive brunch and then I'd go off and coach. Then I'd go and train in the evening and play on the weekends. And it was just, it was it was so fun and I was looking to kind of I'd have happily have stayed there another year and got a kind of more permanent job and you know kind of secured another visa that way but you know at the end of the rugby season then Cornish Pirates got in touch and so I sort of had that and then I was saying to the Aussie team I was like look you know I've got this offer from back home I'd, I'd be interested in staying here but I, you know I need the visa that's the, that's the thing and uh and they did you know they're very chill they didn't like kind of move on it very quickly and then the the pirates offer was it was exciting as well you know they they were very good at the time they just got to the like the previous two championship finals and i was like well it would be ridiculous to <laughs> say no to this you know i don't know what's kind of available here so yeah I packed my bags and came back but it was fantastic it was fantastic and i you know i learned a lot over there as well like you know in terms of spending time on your own basically i'd always been in these group environments i'm sandra and i'm just the professional your small business was looking for but you didn't hire me because you didn't use linkedin jobs linkedin has professionals you can't find anywhere else including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role like me in a given month over 70 percent of linkedin users don't visit other leading job sites so if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Growing up at school, going to university, being in a house of like five, you know, five blokes at university and playing rugby all the time. And then in a pro team where you're very rarely on your own. And that was a good opportunity to kind of get used to sort of, okay, like, right you know, spending time in the world on your own and doing your own thing. It was actually quite nice. Yeah, travel, highly, highly recommend. Now, come on, you, you need to help me out here again. Right. I'm, I'm on the fringe of the fringe. Cornish Pirates got in touch. What what does that mean? Yeah, um, well, it was, it was a funny one because my uh, former teammate of mine, uh, Kieran Hallett, who's now, he's now coaching at Leinster, but he'd, he'd been a teammate of mine at Plymouth Albion and he, he was then at Cornish Pirates having gone via Bedford, I think, if I remember correctly. But the coach, the backs coach at Pirates had asked him, oh, you know, where's, where's Ben Mercer gone, basically? And he was like, oh, I think he's in Australia. And they, and they needed an outside back. And 
So my friend texted me and was like, is this, you know, would you be interested? And I said, yes. So then he put me in touch with Bax coach and then, you know, we ended up having a conversation. I spoke to the, uh, to the chief exec at the time and they faxed me over a deal and I, yeah, I signed it and it was, um, yeah, I had to, I had to fax it back, which is like something that wouldn't happen now, you know, <laughs> that's good. And it wasn't, I didn't have a fax machine, obviously in, in the apartment I was in. So I had to go and find, find some little, some kiosk that had a fax machine. <laughs> Those were the days. I went to New Zealand when I was 19 and that was how I communicated with my dad. He would get to work on Monday morning and fax me stuff and then I would wait for it <laughs> to come through the fact and then I'd write a reply and then fax it back to him. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Happy. yeah. People don't know they're born now, do they? We're beginning to sound like a right pair of old codgers now. <laughs> the championships are a funny league. I mean, I'm I'm up in Scotland. We're definitely aware of it. There's it's full of Scottish guys. There's there's guys who have had pretty long careers with one club. There's guys who have bumped around. Bomber Hislop, prop, who's now kind of got the dream and he's into the premiership and he was in the Scotland squad um, for the summer tours, although it never happened. So there's there's a lot of a lot of chat about the championship. What what is it? Where does it fit? <laughs> I think yeah, that's the big question. I think like it it seems to not fit. Um but when you look and you know your your kind of experience would obviously be more kind of Scottish whereas Wait, there was a point if you looked at the England World Cup squad and there's about a third of them, you know, if maybe even up to half of them had played their first rugby in the championship. And so it's it's clearly a place where people do need you know, where people play and get their first look. I mean, at Pirates, we had we had a load of Bath guys on loan and then we had and we had a few Exeter guys on loan. We had four Exeter guys and three of them have ended up being, you know, regular premiership players. And one of them, Jack Knowles, a British Lion. So you know, that was their kind of first rugby, I suppose, first kind of senior rugby that's not in the A-League. And I think from, you know, my opinion is that is what it needs to be. Um, that that Because otherwise you don't get any, you don't get any rugby as a young player. You know, when you're 18, you're, you're sort of, you might get bunged down the A-League, but actually there's just loads more of you. Um, and when I joined the championship, it was it was it was pretty good. Like there was teams that had some serious players, and I think now the kind of age profile is a bit different. That you don't get many senior players coming back down to the championship to kind of carry on playing because it's just not that appealing. I and mean, there's no money in in it. Essentially, it's um it's it is difficult, and it, I think it does need sorting out because there's all these good clubs, and you know there's all this rugby needs to be available for the young players to play because otherwise where, you know, where, where does it happen? It It's such a strange league to me because there's very few teams could actually cope with getting out of it. Mm. So you're, you're playing and, you know, you're asking players to put themselves through what they're putting themselves through without really the ambition to win it. Yeah, which feel that. which feels straight how do you you're really selling an individual dream to players it's it seems to me yeah i think i think that's right and i think actually you do see a lot of the premiership clubs i think more so now they they i think the general trend is to go for kind of a few very high priced players and bristol have done this they have a few players at this top end of the salary bracket and then they've got a load of guys that are actually not on a lot of money 
And some of them are from the championship. You know, they're, they're like, okay, well, he was good at Ealing and he was good at, you know, he was good at Pirates and he was good at wherever. And they know that someone will take a contract for not a lot, you know, for the opportunity of playing in the premiership. And you're exactly right. I think that's that's the reason you'd be there as a player. And the the, the teams that are sort of there now, a lot of them are hitting this kind of part-time thing that you that you saw at, you know, in National One, you you classically saw at the London teams at Roslyn Park and and whoever else. And now there's kind of Richmond, Bedford, Bedford have been like that for a long time, uh, Amptill. You know, those teams are kind of where you come here and you work and then you also play for us. And and I think that's great because it means there's, you know, it's less risk for the for the player. You know, if if you if you do really well and the premiership team takes you, you can kind of put it all on the rugby, push your chips in. But I think whatever the championship does, it probably needs to have that aspect, whether you're working or whether you're studying or, you know, it needs to have a load of guys that aren't just, like you said, putting everything on the line for a kind of, yeah, for an unwinnable division. (laughs) (laughs) Me and mine was coaching at Jersey Reds. Uh, Neil Turner is now back in Aussie doing good things in coach development in Australia. And that, that was very much his role as well as a coach. He wanted to, you know, put himself out there, show that he was capable with the hope of an assistant coach here or an analyst job here. Mm. There's, there's a lot of former players who are coaching in the, in the championship who must have that desire. Are they able to create strong environments knowing that people are there for themselves? I don't know. And I think like, it's funny because my experience of it is quite a long time ago now, so it probably is quite different. Um, it's it's hard for me to kind of venture too many opinions on that, but yeah, I think those those people they yeah they want to do a good job. I think everyone wants to do a good job like for themselves, but yeah, you you sort of you'll do the best job by doing right by the lads in that in that kind of scenario. Obviously, if you're coaching and word gets around, you know, if you're if you're a coach who you're difficult or you know people don't like you or you're you know you're, you're a bit brutal it's like well everyone talks so yeah i think it's a bit of a kind of help me to help you scenario which is probably quite healthy so it's like if everyone wants to get on then probably everyone wants to improve and get better so it's probably like a sort of healthy environment in that respect but yeah i don't know like it's not i'm just pontificating is is coaching something that interests you not really. Um, I, I looked into it a bit when I came back. I'd, I'd be interested in maybe like mentoring young players, but I think, yeah, actually kind of the day-to-day coaching doesn't. And I think everyone says, don't they, like to, it's an obvious question to, to ask an athlete. It's like, oh, do you, want, do you want to go into coaching? And like, you know, with rugby, like, like, as an example, there might be a squad of like 35 players, but maybe there's five coaches. Uh, one of them is the director of rugby or, you know, whatever they want to call the top job. But that job's not limited by age. So there's a guy, you know, the guy at Worcester, I think he's still there. He's about 70, right? Yeah, so, solely, yeah. <laughs> so you, you know, you're not competing in a kind of 15-year age bracket of people. The, the, the market for jobs is actually like harsher than it is for players. And the lifestyle is, you know, you're away every other weekend. You do, you do very long hours. Friends of mine are now in, a, in at Bath in and around the kind of academy or the skills coaching gigs. And 
they work they work so hard and you know they've got young kids and then you know they might have to go away and stay in a hotel on the weekends and it's it's actually probably more difficult i'd say than being a player in in those respects it obviously doesn't have the kind of physical threat (laughs) but like unless you're coaching in france (laughs) exactly but yeah, you uh, you actually it's it's a very difficult line of work and it asks a lot and uh, yeah it's it that type of coaching it doesn't really appeal to me but yeah maybe something to do I, I really enjoyed in Sydney because I worked with uh, I had the kind of under 14s and the under 16s and it's like the young kids like that you see them improve so quickly you know a 15 year old he might go from being quite bad to being suddenly quite good like you know in in six months in a year. And it's actually really just rewarding to see that progression and, you know, and working with kids is really like a great thing to do <laughs> when people do it. It's, it's fantastic. Yeah. It has its moments. Yeah. So being a writer and being able to speak French, are we going to, I have visions of the guy in Love Actually who moves to that little <laughs> remote place and does it all on a typewriter. That's my romantic vision for your future. Is that is that going to happen? I mean, I'd love that to happen, yeah. And if anyone would like to make that happen for me, then you know, please get in touch. <laughs> um, I'd love to. I mean, yeah, I do miss France in a way. I miss living there and I loved living there independently of the rugby. And it's a, it can be an annoying place. Like if you want to do something, if you want to get something done, it's quite annoying or if you need something doing more to the point but um but yeah i i think they get a lot right it's a, it's a beautiful place there's so many it's a big place as well there's so many different aspects to it so i'd i'd love to go back there and that's sort of what i'm hoping to do is you know with the writing is get sort of book projects and go somewhere you know for a few months at a time and sit and do them so yeah i i think maybe you know the colin firth dream is not impossible <laughs> <laughs> well, that that town that you spent so much time in, you, you started off as an alien, and then, well, it sounds like you had two coffees in every coffee shop every day, so you became a pretty well-known figure. And you know, I didn't realise you're a barista as well, so surely <laughs> there could be a little writer's cafe opened up. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, again, if anyone wants to make that happen, you know, <laughs> some, some invest. If anyone's got a few euros they want to waste on my writer's cafe, then <laughs> please, please give it to me. And if you want to do it in a ski resort, you know, if you want to do it by the beach, you know, I'm pretty open to ideas. Um, yeah, it's all that, all that good stuff. I, lo- I love the stories about being in France, and you've you've got a young French kid who's you know playing in your reserve team, and then gets a chance, and then you've got a Fijian wrecking ball who comes in and you've got this little English clique who's there trying to marry all those things together and you took quite a senior role in those things um, trying to make things happen make it a strong team have you is leadership something that you welcome yeah I I don't it's hard to know what it is but I was always someone who was kind of given leadership positions I suppose and yeah I think when I went to France like I wanted to learn the language as well and not everybody does so or not or not everyone's able you know to do it that quickly maybe but we had lessons and that's one of the big appeals to me of going was learning the language like for 
you know, just to be able to do it. But but then also, yeah, to be able to really get in the mix with the boys and it was really fun. So it being that kind of liaison and being, like I said, quite a social person, like having those language skills was was great. And it meant when French guys came and, you know, there's the uh, the rep we had as well, particularly later when we had more foreigners, was that we were, you know, we were English. So when we played other teams, they'd be like, yeah, you're putain anglais or whatever. Like they'd go, you know, give us a stick. But when we had French guys come to like look at the team to maybe side, and they'd be like, oh, here's our foreigners. And when you could say, ah, oh, bonjour, and like, you know, have an actual chat to them in French, then it's a more welcoming environment for like, for other French guys as well. Cause you know, they're, they're probably a bit like suspicious about coming to a team full of roast beefs. <laughs> roast beefs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you must've seen people sink though, because they weren't able to embrace that and it must be tough i mean france i don't know if you've seen the can't remember if it's on amazon or netflix it's called mercenary about a a, a french-speaking kid in i think it's the kukai or new islands who comes oh, okay. over to france it's pretty brutal it's it's yeah. not a particularly cheerful watch um but culturally that's he spoke French, so that that bit maybe was a bit easier. But culturally, it must be a struggle to jump in somewhere where the language is so so different. Um, I'm interested to see if things like your book and the world opening up a little bit. If players think, oh, you know, I can go to France because it's full of English speakers. It, it, life isn't that straightforward, is it? No, no, it is. When you get there and you just realise that everything, you know silly things like sorting out the internet for your flat or you know like doing things like that and it is quite difficult and i think if you're in paris i think everybody does sort of speak english and you could get away with it you know it's a big capital city obviously but in rouen we we're only an hour and a half from paris but actually almost no one spoke english so it is quite you know the first year we had lessons we had lessons once a week but we we managed to up it to twice but you know for the first particularly the first three four months it, it was quite tough i suppose and there was few there were fewer foreigners then as well um i mean it'd be interesting in the in the bigger teams i mean like you know finn russell he he's been such a he's been such a phenomenal success over there and it's great he's my favorite player to watch probably and it feels like that team and you know also being indoors like <laughs> really suits the way he wants to play and and it seems like it really fits in. And I, I, I don't know what his language skills are like, but I remember meeting some of the kind of, some of the guys down at Toulon, Toulon, you know, me meeting those guys. And some of them have been there three or four years and didn't speak any French. You just thought it was a bit of a shame, but also, you know, how, how much did they need to speak it? Because, yeah, you, I don't know. It's a bit chicken and egg, isn't it? If there's, there's loads of French guys, like there was for us, you sort of, you sort of should, or, you know, if you don't, it's going to be terrible. Whereas maybe in the last year we were there, it was quite possible to just turn up and not, not learn it because you just knew you had the safety net of loads of other foreign guys. So it's probably the, the rock stars get to do whatever they want. Uh, yeah. do, do, you, do you still enjoy watching rugby? You've mentioned Finn Russell. I mean, that, that arena just looks absolutely spectacular. It must be on lots of people's list of places to go to watch the game. Yeah, I'd love to go there. Um, I'd love to go and watch a game there. I think La Rochelle, I'd like to go and watch a game too. That looks good. But apparently it's impossible to get a ticket. Like they, they sell out every single every single game. But I, yeah, I, I still watch. I actually watched, um, I still follow Bath, you know, um, you know, for all their flaws. And last weekend was obviously quite chastening if you're a Bath 
Yeah, it was a sore one. Jeez, oh, that met, was sore. I mean, that was really quite something. But the um, yeah, I still watch, but I don't. I probably don't watch quite as much. I used to be a bit of an obsessive. You know, I was one of those like six a.m. Super Rugby viewers on a Friday, Saturday. That was good stuff. But yeah, it's a shame the top fourteen's not on. Um, not on. You know, it's on something which I've not got like Premier Sports. Yeah. yeah, I'd like to watch a bit of top fourteen, but. Yeah, I, I don't. Yeah, I still keep a still keep an eye on it. I watch the big games, obviously, but yeah, I probably watch. I, I do watch a lot less than when I was playing. The, there's a real difference in culture and how you watch rugby, though, isn't there? From from France to England. I mean, Scotland were now getting smaller stadiums. You know, the right number of people in the stadium. The atmosphere's improved in Scottish games. I'll, I've been to the wreck, but not for a game. It screams a history, but then you look at some of the French crowds. I went to watch a game in Perpignan, just spectacular, crazy oh, yeah. with a, with an edge, but amazing to be there and see the crowd create an atmosphere. And the it's gladiatorial, isn't it? It's so fun, and I think because they have, they still have this like you're defending your town thing that it does exist. Like you know, you, you obviously you know when you're playing at home over here, but. Over there, it really is like quite hostile if you're the away team, and even at the smaller teams, let alone yeah, Perpignan, Clermont, you know those places. Um, yeah, I, I, I think the, the size of stadium thing is definitely like a, a good point. I, in Australia, in particular, with all the rugby league teams around Sydney, you know the the Rabbitohs are right around the corner from me, but they played their home games in the Anzac Stadium, which was you know eighty thousand people. So there's you know. Even if even if there was twelve thousand people, it looked like there was no one there. And yeah, like, this is completely wrong. <laughs> and um, I can't remember which. There's maybe Edinburgh games were in the, were in Murrayfield, weren't they? And you're like, yeah. what's, what's the point? Like, <laughs> it's yeah. completely empty. It just seems seems weird. But yeah, there's is those small old grounds. They're like they're great in a way. You know, if they're there and they're packed, they're great. They're they're such a good yeah. They're such a great thing about rugby in particular. I think I've I've asked this before. I actually got a chance to meet Jake White as he was going to Montpellier and he was adamant he was going to change this. You only win at home mentality. He also had 19 million to spend on the Bismarck (laughs) and his brother and all those kind of, but this French thing of you win at home and almost accept an away defeat. It was that frustrating as a, as a Brit going over or did you just get swept up in it? I mean, to me, it seems alien. Surely good teams just go and do it wherever. It seemed ridiculous. Yeah. And, um, and people would get, you'd see, yeah, you'd see someone at home and he'd be so pumped and, you know, like, um, you know, like they're sort of literally crying with like, yeah, I'm going to get out there. And then you'd see him in an away game and he'd just be sort of slumped in the corner of the changing room, like before the game, <laughs> staring into space. And you're just like, well, what? Like it was, yeah, it was baffling. And that that was one of the, yeah, you're right. That was one of the kind of cultural things that we were going to kind of bring to the squad, I suppose. And and sometimes, yeah, we, we played an away game and I remember it quite clearly where we, we kept going for the corner because we thought we've got them in the in the mall. And actually, it really bothered some of the older players. They're like, "No, you need to respect when you're away that you kick points. You know, you've, like away, you've got to, you've got to do it." And you're like, "What? Like, <laughs> just like, why does it make a difference?" Yeah. And so it, it we did rub up against that a bit, but um, 
yeah and i think we probably did get frencher as we went we started losing the odds away game but actually in the in the final season that's unfair because we we kept going away in the playoffs and hammering people in the away leg and then playing terribly at home and like losing narrowly but then getting through on the points difference <laughs> so it's like we almost became reverse french <laughs> the, trying to figure from just reading the the book this the layout and you seemed confused and it changed sometimes from season to season what the hell was going on it's not just the league where the top four and like there was home and away and you you did win big away and then you look but you still went through and it, i take it it's probably changed again since you've left oh yeah i, I wouldn't even bother trying to keep up i think right? <laughs> every every year it felt like you know they changed the rules and it's like, okay well there's now three pools or there's this one you know now you do this and and then there's yeah these things about oh if you draw it could come down to your points but then maybe it will come down to your discipline or you know you're just like well what like you know tell us what the rules are before we play and, and sometimes both teams are confused there's one playoff game where you know the guy missed the kick but actually i think if he had got it then they might have won. anyway anyway it was too it was always changing it was very french you felt like yeah someone was just in paris going oh we do it like this now <laughs> <laughs> but from from reading the book i mean you, you speak really passionately about the experiences you've had and and you, you know you did that thing of you learned from each of them you wouldn't you wouldn't change it would you no i wouldn't actually um i actually wouldn't i think it it'd been nice if the final season we'd actually been able to like try and get promoted uh, <laughs> but that you know that wasn't really down to me but i think like the whole <laughs> yeah the whole experience was it was so rich and and yeah, I mean, like I met one of my teammates, my former teammates, met him last week, you know, for a catch up. And it's, it's given me so many things and, and it gave me, you know, all this material to write a book and get on with my life, I suppose. So <laughs> it's been, yeah, I wouldn't change it, actually. I, I, read a, I read a lot and I read a lot of rugby books and, and sport books. And the bit that I loved about yours is it's not, you know, I, I played here and I was successful and then I got this and I was successful, but then I got an injury, but then I was successful again. And then I, and that, you know, a lot of players now, the stories are very similar. They might, it differs what league they won or how many caps they got, but it's very similar. Yours is on the fringes of professional rugby, but it's right in the heart of the game that people like me who didn't get to this, I can relate to and I met that guy and I, I know that character and I can remember being somewhere like that there's there's no pictures in the book <laughs> is that deliberate i just yeah um I, I i never really considered putting any in but um yeah maybe maybe i should um, i could go back through the archives find some. <laughs> um but yeah to, to your point um my, my brother played at bath and he had one year on loan at ospreys later on but he when he went to ospreys actually he said oh it's actually quite nice to go to some different places and you're right like everyone has the same experiences you're in the little premiership carousel so even if you're at a different team you know you obviously play the same teams every year you see the same people I think the internationals obviously that's phenomenal and what everyone would like to do but again you sort of do the same things over and over again and someone you know there are there are guys now you know Joe Marchant did it the other year didn't he? he went he went down to Auckland Blues for a season of Super Rugby and Haskell obviously when he was playing he he went and did a load of different things and that there, there are you know the world's obviously been not it's not been possible recently but yeah it'd be nice to see more people kind of 
do those things. And I think, yeah, it, it does become very homogenous. Like you're, you just stick in your domestic league and do it over and over. But, you know, if you want to play, I suppose if you want to play international rugby, that's sort of the deal you make, um, you know, for England in particular, but Ireland, Ireland maybe as well. Like that, that's sort of what you sign up to, isn't it? But there is a diversity of experience out there. You just have to kind of go and do it, I suppose. Yeah, I, I absolutely love it. I hope I hope lots of younger players read it and see that because I think you you said something about players just packed in as soon as they realised they couldn't play for England, and that that makes me think they they didn't necessarily love it. And I I see this a lot, and I I, I think this a lot that there are players who are involved because of the prestige it brings or what it might do for their image, rather than actually loving the thing that they're doing. Mm. Yeah, maybe. Um, I think if you're a young player and you you know maybe you haven't made made the grades from academy to senior or, or whatever, I think yeah, you could use it as your passport. You could go to you could go to university. Go the US would be a really cool place to go and play at the minute with their league. Or you know, I teammates go to Hong Kong, and that's been a thing that people commonly do when they're kind of stepping out of professional sport. But yeah, you could you could go to you go to Italy, go to you know go to France. There's all these places you could go, and you know the the worst that would happen is that you come home, you know, like after a few months. And the best thing that might happen is that you you know spend a few years there and you absolutely love it. <laughs> it seems like the risks aren't that great and the rewards are potentially enormous. So yeah. I'd encourage young players if that's your situation. I'd say you know see what you you know. You can always go to uni in another year or something like that. It's like see what you could do with your rugby, like in you know for one year. See see what you could find because it would probably surprise you. Uh, you you talk about the different people, and you said I've played with the most educated and the uneducated. When I went to Hong Kong as a twenty-one year old <laughs> I, and spent four years there, I I tend to say I played with princes and paupers, like guys who were running HSBC Monday to Friday and playing like demons on Saturday afternoon and being an absolute buffoon on a Saturday night <laughs> with guys who had played the game for not long and were local Hong Kong Chinese and were just getting into it. And those those characters and those experiences, those lessons are just phenomenal. And, and I, I do I absolutely love the book. I'm looking forward to reading the rest. Are you, are you keen to stay in sport or are you going to, branch out and write books on other things um a bit of both actually yeah i'm keen like i love i still love sport i i think there's so many um it it's just a great lens and focus through which to look at the world and then you know you can broaden out from there and that's that was one of the things that people were nice about with, with fringes actually they were so, sort of saying oh you don't while some of it's quite sort of technical rugby sort of chat they're like actually i really like the bits just about france or you know that it, it wasn't necessarily everything to everything to do with sport that people liked about the book and I'd, I'd be interested in yeah broadening out i'd be interested in writing fiction down the line maybe i've got loads of ideas and you know it's just i reckon i'm especially over the last two years the number of people who have done some kind of travel around scotland show for channel five half an hour on a thursday night at half past seven i reckon ben mercer should do france rugby clubs 
and oh. just just tour around, go and watch them for a little bit, watch the game, speak to some characters, do a bit of French, you can have some subtitles, do a bit of English and you're speaking to the international guys. I reckon that would be gold. Get on to BT Sport or Premier, go and sell this to Premier. <laughs> yeah. And then they might give you a free subscription and you can watch the top 14. Again, yeah, sign me up. Um, <laughs> I'd be very happy to do that. I, I think like one guy I actually admire, and I mean, this is kind of, it couldn't get much better, but I don't do you know. Have you ever watched any Anthony Bourdain? So he he's he's an interesting comparison in a way because he became kind of prominent. He wrote a book about being a professional chef. So it's called Kitchen Confidential, and he he um, oh, yeah. he's a sort of famous cook in a way, but not he, he's famous for being a cook, but not being a brilliant one. So not being Gordon Ramsay or whoever else, but. He, his show is a sort of travel show and he goes around the world and he sits with people and eats, but he's very, a bit like I said, princes and paupers. He'll, he'll eat in a sort of Michelin star place, but then he might go with the chef to where they eat when they finish their shift. And it, it could be McDonald's. It could be, you know, maybe they'll take him to like their grandma's house the next day and have, you know, a sort of family meal. And it's just a really phenomenal show. I mean, the guy's like passed away, um, but it's well worth looking up. So, so Something like that would be very cool to do, I think, if you kind of framed it around sport. Yeah, I love it. I reckon that's the job for you around, <laughs> around France. And then second series could be around Italy and then just, yeah, go, yeah. just go and have a grand old time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so if, any, yeah, if anyone's interested, uh, you, know, you know where to find me. I'll happily, I'll happily wander around France, you know, watching rugby and drinking demi years. <laughs> <laughs> Nice. Well, ben, thank you. You've given me so much of your time. Um, at the end of this, there's there's one question I, I asked. This is the only bit I teed you up for, and I'm, I'm intrigued as to where you're going to go with this. So, Ben Mercer, for you, happiness is? A choice. Oh, wow. Wow. That's powerful to finish on. <laughs> awesome. Ben, thanks very much. I've absolutely loved speaking to you. Thanks for giving me your time, and, and hopefully I'll see you on one of those wanders at some point. Yeah, Bruce, it's been a real pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Absolutely love it. What a guy. And I reckon that is a TV show. You heard it here first. This is groundbreaking stuff. Uh, if you haven't already, get hold of Fringes by Ben Mercer. It's an absolutely superb read. Life on the edge of professional rugby. I loved it and I'm sure you'd enjoy it too. If you've enjoyed this, you can get us on Apple, Acast and Spotify. You can watch on YouTube and Facebook and hopefully you'll tune in again. If you've enjoyed it, tell your friends. If you haven't, then remember, just stay quiet. I've loved it. My name is Bruce Aitchison from Happinesses Egg-Shaped, and this has been the Happinesses Podcast. I look forward to speaking to you all again very, very soon. Hello, I'm Mayhem. Hello, I'm Chaos. And our Happiness is Egg-Shaped. Happiness is Egg-Shaped. It loves a circle with no end. No, 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 um, happiness is egg shaped and loves a circle with no end. Mom 
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.